the next four days, that is the next four, sure. not the next four days, we're going to be talking about how do we know it's true? It being the Torah. How do we know it's true? Because, as I'm sure you all know, the Torah is presented not only as beautiful and inspiring and sublime and good for the family and good for your mental health and all the rest, but it's also presented as true. Now, long, frustrating experience has taught me that if we don't agree at the outset, what counts as knowing, then the rest of the time we're going to be arguing across purposes. So we have to do a little philosophical preparation. If you're allergic to this, just sleep. It's okay. Probably won't matter in the end. But for those people who, who, who take it seriously and want to be sure that they have, they have adequate grounds for knowledge, um, this will hopefully prevent a lot of wasted time afterwards. How do we know anything? Here is a very simple and intuitive thought. A person says he knows something, has to have a reason. It's not just that he feels very strongly about it. People feel very strongly about prejudices. To really know it, you have to have a reason. How good does the reason have to be? So, the simple thought goes on. Well, if I claim to know A, and I give my reason, someone can point out to me that even if your reason is correct, A might not be true, then it's not a good reason. A good reason for A ought to nail it down. Nail it down. Make sure that it's right. If there's any possibility of mistake, then your reason isn't a good reason. That's a simple, intuitive, persuasive idea. And it's dead wrong. Dead wrong. Because if that's what it takes to know, then nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything. Because whatever reason you give, for whatever you think you know, it's always possible to think of some possibility, some wild, crazy possibility, that your reason doesn't rule out. And if I follow the simple <coughs> idea, then you don't know it. Let's see. You know who your parents are? Ha. How do you know? They told you. And you trusted. <laughs> but uh, couldn't you really have been adopted? And isn't it possible? Now he said, but I look just like my parents. You know why? Because they took their baby pictures with them to the orphanage and picked out a baby that looked like their baby pictures. So of course you look like them. Ah, you did a DNA test? No, you didn't. I know you didn't. And furthermore, even if you did, could you be sure that your should be both parents? Those people, uh, <laughs> that they didn't pay off the lab to give you a false result? What could you do to be absolutely certain, without possibility,
possibility of a state. There's nothing you can do. Now, <coughs> philosophy has become infamous in the last 300 years for thinking of possibilities of mistake for everything you think you know. Is the world older than five minutes? Five minutes. This was, this was Bertrand Russell's example. I'm sure, I hope, anyway, you're all convinced it's older than five minutes. Otherwise, I don't want to lend you any money because two months soon later you'll say, Proof to the world is more than five minutes old. Then you'll collect. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to Okay, you all believe it's older than five minutes. Could you prove it? Prove it beyond the possibility of a mistake. Isn't it possible, just possible, that five minutes ago everything came into existence looking just as it does now? What could you do to rule that out? Well, since Percy Russell thought this up about a hundred years ago, nobody's figured out a way to rule it out. My field was philosophy mathematics. Even in mathematics, there are problems. Even in pure logic, there are problems. Even your own existence is a problem. As they pointed out to Descartes. So if your standard is to know it, means I have to have a reason. And the reason has to be so good that I can't possibly be wrong. If that's your standard, then nobody knows anything. <laughs> Which means that it's a wrong standard. It's a wrong standard. Now, since Descartes started this 350 years ago, people have been scrambling to find the right standard, and they're still scrambling. And they'll probably be scrambling for a while, because it's a very tough problem. The one thing everybody agrees on is the Cartesian standard is wrong. Now, I mention this because, as I present to you evidence that the Torah is true, there is an itch and I've never yet spoken to a group where someone didn't scratch. And the itch is, but Rabbi, suppose I accept everything you said. Still, isn't it possible that the Torah is still false? The answer to that question will always be the same. The correct answer to that question is, yes, yes, in spite of all the evidence, it's still possible that the Torah is false. Yes, it's possible, and so what? So what? That just puts it in a bag with knowing who your parents are and knowing that you exist and knowing the world is more than five minutes old and knowing the truth of mathematics. It puts it in a bag with everything else. To be interesting, the critic will have to show independent negative evidence. Not just the mere possibility, but negative evidence. Evidence against. And it'll have to be better than the evidence in favor. That will be interesting. <laughs> That will be interesting, but merely pointing out the possibility of mistake will be uninteresting. Now, I stress, as I said, because I've never gotten through yet the series of lectures, without at least three people raising it, the shade of Descartes. But at, least at the outset, we have put this on the table. That's, that's not an acceptable response. Now, that's true for any intellectual position, for any belief, for any claim to knowledge. Much more so is it true for a proposition that has direct practical effects. Because in deciding to accept the Torah as true, one is deciding on a way of life. This is not just a proposition that maybe there's a tenth planet in the solar system which has been missed until now. Or maybe neutrinos have mass. 
Or maybe the universe is open. This is a proposition that has direct practical effects. Let me show you why. Imagine for a moment, now I, I, I guess that a number of you, for you, this will be a real stretch of imagination. But try it. It's good to exercise your imagination from time to time. Imagine standing at Sinai with two and a half million other Jews. And imagine hearing from the creator of the universe no fires on Saturdays. Okay? Don't light any fires on Saturdays. Just imagine that. I'm sure that a number of you don't believe this. Okay, I'm asking you to believe it. I'm asking you to imagine it. You know, it's sort of like reading Don Quixote. Imagine. Imagine standing there and hearing with two and a half million Jews King Shabbos. Would that, would that have any effect on your plans for the weekend? Uh, would it be relevant to take into account? Or would you say, you know, life is sort of full of all sorts of experiences. You know, I heard the theater say King Shabbos and now I'm going to the beach. You know, it's, well, what, what's one thing I have to do with the other? I haven't yet met a person who said, yeah, if I heard it, you know, it would be interesting. I'd probably write it in my diary, but it wouldn't have any effect on my behavior, <laughs> my actions. <laughs> okay. So, being there, hearing it, for sure, would change how one makes decisions about life. Good. Now, is it really so important that you be there personally? Suppose you're convinced that two and a half million other people heard God speak and say, keep Shabbos. Shouldn't that have the same effect? I mean, maybe psychologically it would be less vivid and less powerful, but logically, if God really revealed himself to Sinai and told two and a half million Jews that from now on, Jews have to keep Shabbos, that ought to be a reason for changing your plans for the weekend. Right. That's why there's so much psychological pressure to deny that there was a revelation at Sinai. Because if there was, then I'm going to have to change my plans for the weekend. Here's a truth which creates a difference in your life. As Rabbi Schiller puts it, it's an idea that obligates. The very idea, if I take it seriously as true, creates an obligation. Okay. So, accepting the Torah as true is a question of accepting a way of life. <coughs> now, let's ask, what kind of evidence do we need? What kind of reason do we need? What kind of justification do we need? I'm aware that all of those are different terms. I'm putting them all in because I don't care about the differences for now. What do we need in order to decide how to live? There, we don't need certainty at all. Certainty never comes up. Almost all of the decisions you make in life, you make in very great ignorance. Ignorance of the facts and ignorance of the outcome. You have some information. Information is always incomplete. Many of the things that are relevant are known to you only with probability, not with certainty. Indeed, there is a a mathematical study called Decision Theory, and the official title is Decisions Under Uncertainty. How to rationally make decisions when you're uncertain of the information that's relevant. You're a doctor in the emergency room. There's been an accident. A person comes in, mangled, bleeding. You have to act. 
you haven't got time for extensive x-rays. You haven't got time to do blood tests. You can't check his allergies. You have no time for consultation with other experts. You have to act. Well, that means that you haven't got time to do a careful therapeutic workup before you act. On the other hand, you don't just guess. You don't flip a coin. You use your experience to assess the relevant probabilities as best you can on the basis of your partial information, and you act as best you can. When you choose a profession, when you choose where to live, when you choose how to invest your spare cash, if you have any spare cash, uh, when you decide whom to marry, all these decisions will be based on incomplete information. And that means they will be based on probabilities. The way we make practical decisions is probabilities. That is to say, usually the decision I make depends upon the truth of certain propositions. And I don't know whether they're true or not. So I gather evidence as best I can. And then I assess the probability of the relevant propositions. And on the basis of that, I make a choice. If someone says, but look, it's only probability. You don't know for sure what's going to happen. And that means that I shouldn't decide until I know for sure, then I might just as well stop living. Because all of my decisions are based only on probabilities. So, what we really need to know is how much probability is relevant in deciding to accept the Torah as true, where deciding to accept it as true means deciding to live it as true. That's why the written version of this I call living up to the truth. Because that's really the criterion that counts. Now, my proposition is this, that any advance in probability, any superior probability is enough to decide. If you're in the simple case where it's P or not P, proposition P is either true or false, and that's what my decision has to be based on, if the probability that P is true is 50% plus epsilon, a little more, doesn't have to be 51%, 50% plus something. Then that's reason enough to act as if it's true. Doesn't have to be 50% or 80% or 90%. Any, any surplus of probability on one side is enough to get to, uh, to generate the, the decision. And if it's three, three possibilities or seven possibilities, the one with the greatest probability is the one which should guide one's decision. Now, I want to stop and examine two objections to what I'm saying, and then I'll stop for questions. See how we got done so far. One objection will be this. Listen, Rabbi. I agree with you that when you make a practical choice, you have to do it on the basis of probability. Nobody knows for sure all the relevant information. But listen, there are choices, and there are choices. Not all choices are the same. Some choices are of... Alternatives that have limited effects. Limited effects. Reversible effects. Choose what college to go to. You can transfer from college to college. It's a mistake. Even if you choose a profession, you could be retrained to go into another profession. Choose whom to marry. Divorce is a mess. It's a big, a big, a big mess. Over, but it's possible. 
Here you're talking about adopting a religion. Adopting a religion is your whole life. It affects your whole life. It changes your whole life and it's for the sake of the rest of your life. Surely for a decision with, this, with consequences as big as that, a little edge in probability shouldn't be enough. You should be not require a bigger probability. 60%, 70%, 80%. Okay, not certainty. We already understood that certainty is impossible to achieve. But a little edge in probability isn't enough to justify making a decision with such gigantic consequences. This objection is a mistake. It's a mistake on two grounds. First of all, the decision to adopt, let's say, the Torah as a way of life, isn't so gigantic. It isn't so out of line, quantitatively, with other decisions that you make. First of all, I suppose you know this, just you don't focus on it, the decision is reversible. There are people who get in for a while, and then for whatever reason get out. There's no ball and chain tied to your leg. Everybody is free, and they make their own decisions, and some people come in for a few years, and they decide they don't want it and get out. So if marriage is reversible, and profession is reversible, the decision to lead the Jewish way of life is also reversible. Secondly, again, I'm reminding you of something which you, you, I'm sure you know, to become a religious Jew does not mean that you go off someplace to a cave and meditate for the rest of your life. It's not giving up everything you once knew. We use airplanes and fax machines and cell phones and email. And I just came from the gym where I work out three times a week. Um, so, if, uh, you know, we have families. We um, eat three square meals a day. Shabbos, the food is especially rewarding. Food and drink, company and the rest. So it isn't as if you give up everything. You do give up some things. And the, the quality or, or mode of operation that applies to other things. And more than that, it's not only that you don't give up everything. But if you look at the statistics, maybe there's an advantage here. In terms of the survival of the family as against divorce, and the quality of family life, and the probability of being drug-free and alcohol-free and violence-free in your communities, and the probability of literacy and education and sensitivity and community support. One could argue that the quality of life in terms of values that even non-religious people share the quality of life in the, in the religious community is superior to that in the non-religious community. So that, so far from giving up, losing, suffering by the choice, everyone could argue that, that since there is a benefit in the choice, one should only require a lower probability of truth, not a higher probability of truth. But certainly the idea that you're giving up so much so therefore you need a higher probability of truth to justify the loss is, uh, is, not, uh, is not an acceptable uh, objection. That's one of the <coughs> wise objections, am I correct? The objection that you need higher probability because more is at stake. But secondly, uh, in logic it's not correct. The size of the stakes has no impact whatsoever 
on the criterion how you make your choice. Here's my example. Uh, George goes to the doctor, and he does a workup. The doctor says, George, you have a problem. You have certain symptoms. And people with these symptoms have one of two diseases, A or B. Now, the good news is there's a surefire cure for A, called A-star. And there's a surefire cure for B, called B-star. We can cure either one of them, for sure. The trouble is, if you give A-star to someone with the disease B, he dies in two months. And if you give B-star to someone with the disease A, he dies in two months. And if you have A or B and do nothing, you die in two months. So we've got to do something, seems, the doctor says. And we don't know what to do. So George says, well, well wait a minute, Doc. Uh, okay, I have the symptoms of both diseases, but what's the probability? You know, what's the probability with people with my symptoms of having A or having B? So, well, that's part of the problem. It's pretty close. With your symptoms, it's 52% A and 48% B. <clears throat> Okay, now let's see. What should George do? Should he say, listen, we're talking about life and death now. These are the biggest possible consequences. Life and death. No, life and death you can't decide on 4%. You need more than 4% to decide on life and death. It's just too small. So, I can't decide, I'll do nothing. That's dumb, right? Because it's going to be dead for sure in two months. That's surely not the right response. Okay, so George says, oh, no, that's a mistake. Of course, I'm just killing myself. Let's see. Um, so, of course, I'm going to take A-star or B-star, one of the cures. Which cure should I take? Well, it's life and death. Life and death. You can't decide what to do for life and death on the basis of 4%. So, I'll flip a coin. That's also dumb, because it's 4% in favor of A over B. So, of course, what you should do is take A-star. Isn't that true? Isn't that obvious? The fact that it's life and death makes no difference whatsoever. No, ever. If it were A and B for $10, or A and B for your whole life, still, you get a 4% greater advantage of winning, so you take the 4%. The fact that the stakes are bigger makes absolutely no difference in how you make the decision. Now, for those who know a little decision theory, all I've decided, all I'm assuming here is that the stakes are equal on both sides. I think that's true, and I argued that they are at least equal. That's what I argued in the first point. So, I don't want... Uh, uh, the idea that because the stakes are, are large, you should have a bigger, than, than, uh, a bigger percentage of, of, of probability in favor is simply not correct. Question's up to you. Yeah. English law has two different standards. The only reason we doubt when it's a criminal offense, the balance of probability is a civil offense. Right. Do you think there should be a uniform? Based on what you're saying, do you think there should be Okay, I'll, I'll answer this in, in, in one or two sentences. I don't want to get sidetracked on law, but I'll tell you what I think the, the reason of it is there. After all, with our strict standard of proof in criminal cases, it means a lot of criminals go free. One second. And those criminals who go free victimize the general public. So there is definitely a social cost here. So there has to be some fancy justification for having that strict standard of proof. This was one of my questions that I asked students when I was teaching college when they wanted recommendations for law school. Hopkins didn't have a law school, so I had, you know, bosses had to do it. 
And uh, I would ask him this question. On what grounds do you support the strict standard of proof when you know that because of the strict standard of proof, criminals are going to go free and they're going to victimize the general public? What is the logic? What is the morality in that policy? And the only answer to the question is to weaken the government so as to prevent tyranny. That's the correct answer. But not because you have a better chance of ascertaining the truth in this case as to whether he's guilty or innocent. No, you're just weakening the government to prevent tyranny. That's the only answer that I have. Anyway, but it's not really directly relevant. It's just, that's social policy, which is not directly relevant to my issue. Yeah. How can we apply the probability to the Torah when it comes to Torah? Uh, this is very important. I use numbers. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Obviously, the use of numbers here is totally artificial. And if I do speak about numbers later, if I forget myself and go off into a referee to talk about numbers, <coughs> I'm warning you now, don't take the numbers seriously. But you need to know that we make probability, judgments, and decisions all the time without numbers. Here's my example. You're a district attorney. A murder has been committed. There are five suspects. You have enough money to investigate only three. How do you choose which three to investigate? You base it on your experience. Given what I know about the five of them, these three are like more likely than the other two. Can you put numbers on it? Well, this one is 62%, and that one is a 47%, now one is a 33%, that one is 11%, that one is a 5%, now one is a 2 No, you can't put numbers on it. But you know, the evidence in this case is stronger than the evidence in that case. And therefore, you pick the three with the, with, with the greatest amount of evidence. We make decisions like this all the time on the basis of probability. Indeed, all of our decisions, as I argued before, are based on information of which we are not perfectly certain. And therefore, we have to have some sense of how strong the evidence is. And we very rarely can put numbers on how strong the evidence is for this proposition or that proposition. And yet, we assess the information and we make decisions. So, I don't think it's a, an objection that we can't put numbers on the, on the probability. But indeed, you're right. We cannot. Yeah. In the beginning, you're saying that, like, with the card skepticism, that you can't prove things beyond any doubt, right? But with human skepticism, we could say that beyond a reasonable doubt. So, can we prove the Torah beyond any reasonable doubt? Well, that, of course, will depend upon what you mean by reasonable. Um, but I don't see why you need to do that. If you agree with me that 50% plus epsilon is enough, then I have a precise criterion. I don't need to worry about what counts as reasonable or doesn't count as reasonable. If you like, I can say, I doubt that it's less than, uh, than 50% is not reasonable to take into account because the majority of probability is on this side. Now, there's another dodge. There's another dodge which I would like to steal off if I can. And that is the person who says, um, you know, here's this proposition, P. Now, if I took a position on P, if I said P is true and I decided to act as if it were true and so on and so on, you could ask me, why am I doing that? And I'd have to tell you, Here's the evidence as I see it, and here's why I think that P is likely to be true. And if I rejected P, I said P is false, based my life on that, you could ask me why I did that. And I'd have to present the evidence and show you why I think it indicates that P is false. But, you see, I'm an agnostic. I don't accept P, and I don't reject P. I honestly confess my ignorance. Now, surely, you're not going to ask me <coughs> to justify my ignorance. I just don't know. 
Can it ask me for my estimate of the evidence? Why? I don't know. Surely, the critic says, the amount of evidence and the estimate of probability is only relevant for a person who takes a stand. And I'm not taking a stand. This too is a double mistake. This too is a double mistake. First of all, although it is true, intellectually, that there are usually three positions, accept P, reject P, or be neutral, be agnostic, in practice, there are very often only two positions. Either act as if it's true, or act as if it's false. There isn't a third, a third option to act as if it's neither true nor false. Or as if you're not committed to this being true or false. Um, take the Torah, for example. Either there was a revelation in Sinai, or there wasn't. Now, if there was, to act as if there was means to keep Shabbos. To act as if there was not means to not keep Shabbos. I don't think there are any other choice, other choices. Either you keep Shabbos or you don't keep Shabbos. There's no sort of, you know, not keeping it and not, not keeping it. So, wait a minute, go to Mars? I mean, I how, do you, how do you avoid the, the two possibilities? So, the person who's an agnostic and believe will have to justify his actions, nonetheless. And you can push this point one step further. And if he really were an agnostic in belief, what then would it be reasonable for him to do? Let me give you an example. There's been a, a report, this is just uh, an example, it's not true, but let's say there's been, there's been a report that the Arabs have, po- have poisoned the Jerusalem water supply. Now, it's an unsubstantiated report. On the other hand, the government hasn't denied it. Someone asked me, well, what do you think? You know, do you think that it's true or not? I say, well, I don't have enough information. I mean, there's an unsubstantial report. The government has neither confirmed nor denied. I really don't know. And as I tell you this, I go to the water tap, I open it up, pour myself a glass of water, and I drink it down. <coughs> I think you have a right to question what I'm doing. Because if I don't know whether it's poisoned, then I certainly shouldn't drink it. Now, it seems to me that if a person is agnostic about whether God created, uh, commanded us to keep Shabbos, then maybe he ought to keep Shabbos. Huh? I mean, because he doesn't know. Maybe the creator of the universe commanded us to keep Shabbos. I've never yet met that. Everyone who says he's an agnostic uses it as, as, as the reason to go to McDonald's. I think there's a little short circuit in logic there. If he really is an agnostic, then he doesn't belong in the McDonald's. And he doesn't belong at the beach on Shabbos. So, although there are three positions intellectually, accept P, reject P, and be neutral, in practical terms, with the, with the proposition like the truth of the Torah, there are not three positions. There are only two. You live as if it's true or you live as if it's false, and you'll have to justify it. That's one thing wrong with the agnostic position. The other thing wrong with the agnostic position is that intellectually it's a mistake. Because you do have to justify your agnosticism. If there is clear evidence in favor of the truth of P, then it's wrong to be an agnostic. You're not responding to the evidence. Agnosticism is not the only safe intellectual position. It has to be justified like everything else has to be justified. <laughs> now, how do you justify agnosticism? By saying, for example, that 
There's a raft of evidence relevant to this proposition, and I've only got a tiny bit. Like, for example, just to throw in a footnote which might be relevant to some other occasion, the estimate is that of the biblical period uh, materials that are buried in this country, about 10 to 15 percent have been discovered. That means 85 percent have not been dug up yet. I think that should give people caution to the drawing conclusions about what did or did not happen. It won't, but I just think it should. Um, well, you can't make the newspapers if you're cautious. Um, so, a person could say, I'm refusing to take a, a, a position because so little of the evidence that I need is available, or I haven't discovered it yet, or I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, investigated it yet. And that, I think, is a relevant reason to be an agnostic intellectually. But then we come back to the second point, or the first point we said, and that's the practical decision. Some decisions are forced decisions. You can't avoid them. You can't put them off. If it's a question of investing my money, I assume that AT&T will be here three months from now. Maybe that's a shaky assumption for that. Assumption I make. And I can investigate for a few months and see whether AT&T is a good, is a good investment. But you see, it is now Thursday afternoon at 3.41. So in 26 hours, it's going to be Shabbos. You can't avoid that. In 26 hours, you'll have to decide to keep Shabbos or not to keep Shabbos. They cannot say, well, I haven't got enough evidence to make a decision. Because, probably, if you say that, what you're going to do is go to the beach. And then you're making a decision. So you can't avoid making the decision. So what you say is, I think the right thing to say here is, I don't have a lot of evidence. A lot of evidence is missing. I have very sketchy evidence. But, since I have to make a decision, I'll use the evidence that I have. For this Shabbos. Next week, I'll try to gather more evidence. As I go through life, I gather as much evidence as I can, and I continue to make the decision on the basis of the evidence that I have. That's a reasonable thing to do. Okay? You with me so far? All right. Now, one more little piece of philosophy. Sometimes in life, we have it. Phenomena. Things that happen. And we try to explain them. And we have more or less success in explaining them with our bag of tricks. We have a bag of tricks and we use those tricks to explain what happens. Science's business is to fill the bag with tricks. Organize the tricks. So they have to explain things. What happens when something happens and the bag of tricks doesn't work? Well, of course, you could always hope and pray that it will work. How do you know it doesn't work? You tried them, but there's a few tricks in there and they could be used in combinations, you know. And if you ever uh, worked with programming computers or logic, you know, with a lot of clever moves, you can sometimes build a big thing out of little pieces just, just putting together in a clever way. So maybe... But just wait a while, somebody will figure out a way to use these little tricks and, and put them together so as to explain this new thing. Maybe. Maybe. But we don't always do that. We don't always do that. Sometimes we come across a new thing or we pay better attention to an old thing and we become convinced that the bag of tricks as we have it isn't going to do the job. 
We have some kind of proof, some kind of very strong argument that shows us that the bag of tricks, as we have it, isn't going to do the job, and then we add to the bag of tricks against our will. Here's a couple of examples. What makes things move? Well, until the 20th century, one could have said three things. One is a push, contact. And one is gravity, and one is magnetism. Those are the three things that make things move. Gravity at a distance, like from here to the moon, or from here to the sun. Magnetism at a little distance, you can bring the magnet closer and closer to the nail, and so the point the nail jumps up to the magnet. <laughs> Clever little nail. And contact! Now, along come Rutherford and company, who examined the nucleus of the atom. And what they discover, as far as they can tell, is that the nucleus, the atom, is composed of protons. That's before they discovered neutrons. But they won't help. Neutrons won't help. Protons. Uh Now, protons all have the same charge. They're all charged positively. And as you know from your days as children with fire magnets, Two like charges repel one another. Put two north, north poles of the magnet together, they don't stick together, they push apart. Well, all of the protons are north poles. So how come they're sitting together in the nucleus? Um, let's see, is it glue? No, there's not supposed to be any glue in there. Are there other things pushing it together? No, there's nothing else around. Is it gravity? No, it can't be gravity, because gravity is much, much too weak. Here's the standard example. Back to the nail. I'm bringing the magnet closer and closer to the nail. Now remember, the nail is lying on the floor because the whole earth is holding it down. And at a certain point, when the magnet gets close enough, the the nail jumps up off the earth to the magnet. That means the magnet is winning the tug of war with the earth. That's pretty spectacular, isn't it? I mean, the magnet is very, very small. And the earth is very, very big. And the magnet wins. That shows you how much more powerful magnetism is than gravity. So what is holding the protons together in the nucleus? Now, I suppose theoretically someone could have said, well, it looks hard, but let's give it a couple of centuries, and maybe we'll figure out how gravity does it. Maybe it's gravity too. Who knows? I mean, it doesn't look good. You know, it looks difficult to explain, but, you know, or, or maybe we'll discover other things, you know, pushing it together, little gremlins, maybe pushing it together, very strong gremlins, you know. We're strong at... That isn't what they did. What they said is we discovered a new force. We have to have a new force. The old forces aren't going to do it. This was the discovery of what's called the nuclear force, holding the protons together. So instead of saying, let's stick with the old bag of tricks and wait for an explanation, what they said was, we've discovered something new. Let's take Freud's, shall I say discovery, of the unconscious. Well, that's what they do think. And even those who don't agree with Freud's particular description of it, today I think every, everyone in psychology agrees there's such a thing as the unconscious. Now, Freud said, people do things, sometimes they do quite weird things, and I tell you it's because they have unconscious beliefs and unconscious drives and unconscious desires and unconscious fears. There's another guy in there. There's a whole other guy inside, under your cranium, and he has his own, his, own, his own personality, his own goals, and his own picture of the world, and he's Pushing you around. That's really quite a radical surprise. 
gosh, I thought I was alone under here. <laughs> Turns out I'm not alone. There's this unseen companion, you know, who always skips out of the way when I take a look, but he's the one who's pushing me around and making me do what I do. Why should I accept that? Why should I believe that? It's a little suspicious, isn't it? Something that's there and is only there when you're not looking? You know, something there which you can't see when you look? Isn't science supposed to be based on observation? One could think of all sorts of difficulties with this idea. And people could have said, let's wait, you know, another three or four hundred years and see if we can't explain it without an unconscious. They didn't say that. What they said was, well, there's all this behavior, this behavior's been around for, for, for centuries and centuries, and nobody's been able to explain it, and if you have this picture, then it looks like you could explain it. So people accepted this brand new entity called the unconscious. So not always do we sit back and wait for the old science to do the job. I say this because when we present evidence for the truth of the Torah, which means evidence for God's existence, some people who are into scientism, which is one of the modern religions, um, will say, but you're jumping to new conclusions. Why don't you wait and give science a chance to explain it? Science has explained everything else. Well, not really. It hasn't seen everything else. Not a lot that hasn't explained. And, um, and um, as Noam Chomsky reminds us, as science goes along explaining things, science changes itself very considerably in order to do the explanations. Mm-hmm. It isn't the same old science it was 250 years ago. Not at all. Um, so, but why don't we just wait for science to do it? I'm pointing out that in science, you don't wait for science to do it. In science itself, you often have to expand the element that you regard as real, even elements which, on the previous picture, were impossible. Sometimes there are revolutions where you accept brand new concepts, brand new ideas, which in the previous picture were regarded as impossible. When Newton said that the Earth is holding on to the moon, his contemporary said, and exactly how is it holding on to the moon? Tell us, are the leprechaun blinking arms from here to there? Or is it glue or bubble cup? What is it that's doing the holding? And here Newton made his famous remark, I don't make hypotheses. Now listen, here's a man who said, the same thing that draws the apple to the earth when it falls off the tree applies throughout the entire universe. And he doesn't make hypotheses. Give me a break. Give me a break. That's not a hypothesis. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, I'm prepared to take something I see and generalize it and say it applies everywhere. You ask me how it works, that I don't do. That I don't do. I only talk about what I see. I see that gravity works, so I assume that it works everywhere. How it works, I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm not giving you a clue. They said, but you're telling me it works in an impossible way. You're telling me that there's nothing between here and the, and, and the moon. There's nothing in between and still holding on. That's worse than just saying you won't tell me how it works. You're telling me something that can't work. And Newton said, I know, but I don't care. I say that's what's happening anyway. And it took a generation, and he won the battle. And all of a sudden, the idea that the Earth is holding on to the moon, a quarter of a million miles away, became acceptable, even though before Newton it would have been impossible. So, when you say, let's sit back and wait for science to do it, remember that when science makes progress, it often does things that are brand new. And it has to add to its conception of reality, add to its, its principles, add to its concepts, knows, but what? Science might... No, it could be. <laughs> Ed, God is a scientific concept. 
Who knows? But at any rate, the idea that we're going to present evidence, and evidence that the current secular scientific picture cannot explain, we're going to argue that it's time to expand the picture. It's time to add to the bag of tricks. And I'm, what I'm saying now is that since that does happen, and has happened, and is still happening in science, one should not uh, oppose it with the idea that we should just wait for, sit back and wait for science to do the job. This is one of the ways that science does the job. Okay, everyone with me so far? Good. I'll share you, with you now one particular piece of evidence. I just remind you, of course, in presenting evidence, the conclusion is carried by the weight of the evidence together. No one piece of evidence is supposed to do the job. So if you ask, Rabbi, on the basis of that evidence, am I supposed to believe in Sinai and in God? The answer, of course, is no. Not that evidence alone, but the sum total of the evidence which we presented over a few days. I am presuming that you can remember what I say for a few days. And, you know, a dangerous assumption. Okay, in Deuteronomy 28-30, which I invite you to read, there is a prediction. A prediction that if the Jewish people fall too far in their observance of the Torah, they'll be punished. And the punishment is given a specific description. You'll be conquered by a nation whose language you do not understand, who will come from the ends of the earth, and they will conquer you, slaughter the population indiscriminately, destroy the land, send you into exile, you'll be scattered all over the world, you'll survive, though without any independence or self-determination, <coughs> and you'll ultimately come back to the land of Israel. That's what it says. Now listen. I'm not interested in the psychology of whoever wrote it. That's not the issue. Some people present the argument and they, get, and they get this wrong and then the whole thing goes off, off the tracks. I'm not asking, why would anybody write that and if he didn't know, how could he predict? Some of the, I'm not interested in psychology. People do all sorts of crazy things. And they write all sorts of crazy things. And they predict all sorts of crazy things. I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in, what is the probability that this prediction will come true? My wife knew a woman who threatened her children that if she, they stole cookies they would be eaten by the cookie monster. Criminal. Criminally cruel and irresponsible mother. Correct. But if the child is eaten by the cookie monster, we're all going to be very surprised. Right? Because the probability of it happening is zero, I guess. Okay, so what's the probability? Let's go through piece by piece. You'll be conquered. Everybody's conquered. Everybody gets, don't tell us the Americans, but everybody gets conquered sooner or later. And therefore, that's a very safe prediction that uh, is extremely uh, a problem. By a, uh, a nation whose language you don't understand, that's quite improbable. Uh, if we had been conquered by a Greek-speaking nation, it would have come out false. If we had been conquered by a neighbor, it would have come out false. And it happens. We were conquered by Rome. The conqueror will wantonly slaughter the population and destroy the land. That was extremely rare. The purpose of conquest in the ancient world was, especially by, by empires, was to defeat the army and tax the population. If you destroy the means of production, 
there's nothing left to tax. That's dumb. The Romans weren't dumb. Indeed, they only did it twice. In 300 years of running Europe and North Africa, they only destroyed two communities, us and Carthage. All the others that they controlled, they defeated the army and they taxed them. Um, they'll come from the ends of the earth. There's absolutely no reason to make a prediction like that. As a matter of fact, our army was defeated three times. And the third occasion it was defeated that the Romans destroyed the temple and destroyed the land, as the prediction says. And the legions and the commander that destroyed us the third time came from Great Britain, our friends. They came from Great Britain, which at that time was the ends of the earth. Now, if you're going to be conquered and exiled, why should you end up all over the world? Lots of nations have been conquered and great populations have gone into exile. They don't end up all over the world. If you end up all over the world, how can you predict that no Jewish community, 10,000 families in the steppes of Russia or in North Africa or in, or in the in Arabian Peninsula won't set up an independent polity, an independent Jewish polity with their own self-determination. And how can you predict that they'll survive? There's absolutely no reason whatsoever for them to survive. And then come back to the place of origin. Survival over 2,000 years of coming back to the place of origin had never happened in any other human case. The prediction of such a thing more than two millennia ago is a prediction with expected probability of zero. So you have here a prediction in a great many details. The probability of the prediction when it was made was extremely low. That's good. It means that anybody else looking at this prediction would regard it as unacceptable. And our sources make the prediction confidently. Well, that's what you want, because when you're testing a theory, what you want is the theory should make a prediction that its competitors will deny, and then see what happens. If it comes true, then the theory that made the prediction is supported, and its competitors are discredited. I don't say they're false, but I say they're discredited. There's evidence against them. So here you have a concrete prediction, which is of extremely low probability when it was made, and it came true in every detail. That's the case. You have here a piece of positive evidence that the Torah is true. Now, I don't know how many people here have heard of Sir Karl Popper. If you're worried about how Popper's theory of how science works integrates with this, join me at 4.30 upstairs and I'll explain to you why Popper's wrong and therefore irrelevant to what we're talking about.